0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: Have you tried changing your health year on year resolving that this year things are going to be different but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes when things are not changing we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Rufillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Inclusive Collective. I'm your host, Rob Hadley.
3: And I'm your other host, Nadia Budd.
2: The co host, right? We're co-hosts. Co-hosts, co hosts. Co hosts. I'm co host. I said host, and that screwed everything up. So we're co hosts. I
3: mean, no big deal. Nadia, me, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you today, Rob?
2: I am wonderful. Wonderful. Nadia, I had a question for you. I've been meaning to ask you. Yeah. What do you think about the intro music to Inclusive Collective to the podcaster?
3: Oh, here? that is a great question. I mean, I think it's catchy. What do you think?
2: I feel a lot of anxiety and pressure to say something insightful because of that. It's very suspenseful, right? Like it feels oh, very really? like there's. It, it seems to me like there's something really insightful and and, and deep coming. Do you get that well, sense? Well, don't no? we provide do deep care?
3: insight? I think so.
2: We're- <laughs> Yeah, I think we're delivering, right? I, I do think we're yeah. delivering. So yeah, no, it definitely fills me with a little bit of anxiety when I listen to it myself. But uh, that's but, hilarious. If pe- but if people like it, yeah. I, I'll, I'll stick with it, right? As long as yeah, well, it doesn't maybe, make the listener anxious.
3: Well, maybe we ask the listeners, tell us what you think about the music. Should we change it up or should we keep it? So
2: please, email Please us. let us know. Please <laughs> let us know. So Nadia, we are, let's get down to business. We are on our third episode diving deep into early stage product development. We have absolutely been uh, through this topic in a very deep way. We've covered it yep. in, in a lot of different ways, haven't we?
3: We have, uh, but for very good cause, right? You know, so far we've talked to Nisha Dearborn of Fresh Chemistry, where she's focused on skincare. We've talked to Heather Mayer of StockCard.io, uh, focused on fintech. And if you haven't heard um, just the, a message to our listeners, if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to those episodes, I really encourage you to go back and listen to them because when you have a chance, because they really are fascinating stories. There's so many great learnings that you could definitely take away from their experiences and just their entrepreneurship journey.
2: They were fantastic. Uh, and and like you said, there's good reason we're we're sticking with uh, marketing, branding, product development. One, because it's fun, right? It's really fun to listen to these founders' stories so about developing their products. But yeah. I also think this stage is so important. And once an entrepreneur has identified a gap and starts working toward building their company, they have 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 to, three halves talk to customers, <laughs> get feedback, and listen to what they're telling them if they're going to achieve product market fit.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the feedback loop is just so crucial to any sort of product or service or business. And I think we've really heard some great examples of that so far.
2: And if you don't talk to the right customers, if you're too narrow in your focus, if you haven't taken into account the diversity of your customers and how different customers will interact with your product, you may miss something important, empathy, listening to customers and team members, flexibility. Those are the capabilities and behaviors of inclusive leaders and of great founders.
3: Yes, Um, that is right, Rob. Um, I am so thrilled today because joining us is Jessica Arandondo Murphy, the co-founder and chief operation officer of TrueFit. TrueFit is a global leader in size and fit technology who work with brands such as Athleta and Old Navy and J Crew and Carhartt and so many more. Jessica herself is a Latina entrepreneur, retail technology leader, and very proud mother of three. Jessica's expertise is in fashion, technology, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and has been covered widely across top media outlets such as Forbes and CNBC. And Rob, you're going to die. Guess what? What? She has met Oprah. No. (laughs) I bet you can't wait to hear that story.
2: (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait.
3: Well, 100%. 100%. (laughs) Welcome, Jessica. We are delighted to have you here with us today.
4: Hey, Nadia and Rob. Thanks for having me. Rob, uh, can I say you have such a good radio voice, by the way? He hey, does, right? Hey,
2: thank you. He That's so nice of you. That's so nice of you. I don't. I and and I have a face for uh, for radio as well, right? As they say. Totally. Yeah. So, back to you, Jessica. So again, thanks for thanks for being here. I think we need to hear a little bit about TrueFit because you know it's a really fascinating product and the company that you've built. I feel like it's something that. We've all used, but we may not know that we've used it. And so tell us about the product and then possibly go into the inspiration, uh, for that product and and how you, uh, how you came up with it and how you got started.
4: Yeah. So if you have shopped online recently, um, at anywhere like Under Armour or Dick's Sporting Goods or Neiman Marcus or Old Navy, you might've seen this red little T. Uh, that pops up near the size selection, and really, it's this uh, trusted advisor to help you know what size to buy and how how it will fit you. And you know, it seems like this kind of simple technology that we've all gotten used to to seeing when we shop. But really, it's behind it is a really complicated AI machine learning engine uh, that was really designed to to be that trusted advisor for consumers when they can't try it on. And so, TrueFit is a size and fit technology. We were the first, and we're the leading uh, global uh, solution that retailers and brands use uh, to to give to
3: their shoppers when, again, when they can't try things on. So your your platform and your software, Jessica, I, I I I have used it right, like not even knowing or realizing that what it really was. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was on Old Navy. I just used it on J Crew. Yep. And it literally is about including different sizes globally, right. To, to make people feel comfortable in what they wear. And so for me, like I know growing up, I was a taller girl. I was, I was a little rounder. I still am a little bit. And, um, when I think about like shopping or, or, or just like looking for clothes that fit me, that was a hard thing to do, especially online. And, and sometimes to this day it is. And I feel like when you think about, shopping and consumers you created this product that kind of taps into people's psyche like a lot of trying on clothes is for me at least confidence building right it's it's like it's how you feel in your clothes so in many ways your business is about changing mindsets it sounds like and, and connecting to like the emotional side of people how did you tap into that emotional side from the beginning
4: I'm so glad that you said that, Nadia, because even I mean, it's not just a female problem. You know, when I was first raising money in capital, many of the investors I sat across the table from thought, OK, this is this is just a female problem. This is just you know this. I can't relate to this. But it actually isn't. We have 90 million active uh, users and they're not all women. This is a, you know, a global problem that affects everybody that has to get dressed in the morning. And the reason why is because, like you said, fit is so deeply personal and it's rooted in everything from our preferences to our body shape to our psychology. You know, what do we feel good in? what do we look good in? And so if you think about creating a technology that takes all those really subjective attributes like preference, you can't like a machine. That's how do you do that with a machine? How do you predict that with a machine? You know, that can predict how somebody's going to feel when somebody puts something on. You know, it's not just math. It's not a math problem. It's really about kind of getting comfortable and really understanding what do you feel best in and us then creating recommendations around that. And so we are trying to solve probably the hardest problem that exists in fashion retail, which is connecting people to clothes that are going to make them fit uh, feel great. You know, and our big company motto from the very beginning was we just want people to be true to you, mm. like true to yourself and true to who you are. Whether you were born uh, you know, a hundred pounds and really thin and you you know, or you're somebody who's really tall, you know, or round as as Nadia said. Mm-hmm. You no, know, I am owning as pro- it. <laughs> I'm very curvy. I am Latina, I'm curvy, I you know, and I have the the very stereotypical body to go with it. And so it's, you know, hasn't always been easy for me Mm -hmm. to find clothes that, but really our goal was to turn kind of those tears in the dressing room into joy and delight and to do that when somebody can try things on. And, And so this business has always been very personal to me, very personal to the, to the end shoppers that we, that we serve. And, you know, our goal is to just drive that delight and
3: do it through technology. Do you have an example of like a problem or like a hiccup that you and your co-founder ran into? That that was like one of the biggest lessons learned for both of you. Yeah,
4: I mean, Nati, there's been so many along the way. I mean, I <laughs> we, this podcast would have to be a lot longer, but one that really oh, it can be.
3: It can be. Yeah.
4: <laughs> the people are telling I mean, us they want it. <laughs> yeah. But one that I think was really eye-opening to me was you know, we are based and rooted in machine learning and, and AI. And a lot of people throw those buzzwords around uh, these days. And it's really just about, you know, really learning from behavior. And so to write those algorithms, to to have machine learning at play, it's all based on data that you train with. And so the data that you, you train algorithms, you train on behavior, you watch what's, you know, you, in our case, you monitor what's happening in terms of sales patterns, who's buying what, what kind of customer shapes are, are buying what? And so we pride ourselves, you know, we, and we really, you know, for the very beginning, you would pride ourselves in being this really inclusive company and being a company that celebrates differences. And then all of a sudden we were taking a deeper look into our algorithms that, holy shit, we have a lot of bias in our mm. algorithms. And the reason why is because the training data was too homogenous. Like we were not being careful enough to say, is the, tra- is the data that we're training these models with, is it diverse enough? Is it being trained on diverse enough samples? And, you know, we were thinking because we had a wide range of different retailers and and their data that was training all these algorithms. And of course it was diverse enough. But when we really kind of paid attention to it, we weren't good enough. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, this was now like five years ago, but we embarked on this really big journey and we, you know, we're really proud we we, we got to present um, sort of our findings and and send some thought leadership at the world's, you know, one of the world's premier. Uh, recommendation conferences in front of companies like Netflix and Amazon and others, um, and really just making sure that people who are, you know, in the in the seats of developing these algorithms are really minding the data that they're training with. And so, again, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a fun discovery that even us, this company that prided itself on, you know, being diverse and inclusive, um, that even we had some bias that was inherent in the way they were training our data just great opportunity for us to to say we can do better. And we did do better. I mean, and, and so I think we, you know, we we certainly have led um the charge in, in that in that regard.
2: Following up on that, how has that made your product better and and driven either growth in your, you know, from a top line perspective or in just how you think about what your company can be?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think for us, we, you know, we measure those things in terms of everything from recommendation quality to Are people you know getting the end experience that we hope they're getting you know again we have 90 million active members and for us it was about are we serving those active members um every single one of them every single diverse set -hmm. set of them um in the best way we possibly can does it mean that we get it perfect every time absolutely not but does it mean that we're a hell of a lot better than we were five years ago for sure Mm -hmm.
2: jessica you talked earlier you talked about meeting with those investors and then they thought that this was a female problem you know how was that 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 first round of investor discussions and then how has that changed over the course of of raising more and more capital
4: i'd say in you know i know this is supposed to be a product focused uh session here but you know i think you can't tell our story without t- you know talking about how hard it was t- to get this idea funded you know every step of the way And the beginning, you know, when you just have an idea and you really are imploring people to take a bet on you and you have no proof, you have no, you know, you have nothing that you can point to. And then I was, you know, we were both first time entrepreneurs. Um, We had nothing that you can point to to say, I've done this successfully. You can bet on me. It was truly like you're betting on this idea and you're, you have faith in these two people that they're going to be the ones to do it. And so, you know, if you sum it up, I'd say, I'd venture to say I've probably talked to thousands of investors through the course of our time. And now we have well over $100 million of, of venture capital mm. in this company um, invested through, um, you know, through three rounds, through Series C. Um, but those early days were really, really, really difficult. And, mm. and, you know, and
2: what can I just ask what percentage of the investors that you've spoken to were women who was sitting on the other side of the table?
3: Yeah, zero <laughs> she's doing a zero holding
4: my she, hand right yeah, now she's holding and making big, the uh, <laughs> the shape of a zero yeah. um, <laughs> yes, it was zero, and that has that has really changed over time, but still, I would say, you know, less than five percent of the investors that I speak to are women.
2: did you feel that that was a barrier back in two thousand and three, four or five is probably even worse. Did you have a sense that the people that were that you were trying to get money from raise capital from didn't understand the problem because they're not women or just because they, they didn't shop online. What was the, I'm just trying to think, did you have the sense that they were missing something in their, their identities as opposed to your identity?
4: It certainly became pretty apparent that it's very challenging to raise capital for a business that, that the people on the other side of the table didn't identify with. I've never I've never been somebody that, you know, has carried a chip on my shoulder because of the people that I sat across the table from. I've always operated in um, you know, in, in those circumstances where like I might be the only one, you know, whether it's the only Latina, whether it's the only woman. And so I've always learned, you know, to operate in those environments and that, yeah, I just had to work a little harder. I was so happy to see how much venture capital in particular has really um, embraced diversity because you have more VC-led, uh, women-led VCs now than ever before. Again, it's still a very small percentage, you know, of, of the pie, but it's a it's a big start and, you know, minority-led uh, venture capital firms. And so I think investors along the way are also learning that they, they can take risks on companies that they don't necessarily relate to personally. And some of those are the biggest wins. And our investors have certainly uh, been on that ride with us. And, and luckily, you know, we have some great people around the table as well. But for anybody that is raising money, it's, you know, it's not an easy thing. It's not for those that are that are faint of heart. You know, it's um, it's very taxing and it's you hear a lot of no's and you have to be willing to kind of take those licks and just pick yourself back up, Mm -hmm. go back into that boardroom that next day and do it all over again. And then you finally get that yes. And it's uh, the most amazing uh, exhilarating thing that uh, you ever experienced. And it gets easier over time.
2: Yeah, Jessica. I just I want to I want to go back to you, talk about you a little bit um, as well. You've you've mentioned a couple of times that you're a Latina uh, founder, Latina entrepreneur, and I just wonder if if you always thought of yourself in that way, or if it's something that you've grown into uh, over time.
4: Yeah. So I was the first one in my family born in this country. Um, so I was born to Colombian immigrant parents who immigrated to the United States in the seventies. My first language was Spanish, and I didn't learn English until I went to school. And it's a really interesting question. I actually never been asked this before. So I I really appreciate the question because I think growing up, because I learned English in school, I tried really hard to suppress who I was when I was in elementary school and, and growing up. My parents would speak to me in Spanish. I'd always respond in English. I refused. I literally refused to speak Spanish for a big chunk of my life, and I think it was because I just. You know, I when I was, I didn't have my first peanut butter and jelly sandwich till I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> my mother would pack me like all this like really ethnic like yeah. Colombian food. Here I am, like, a little girl like eating this, and you know, it's now looking back on that time that now I get why I was trying to like suppress who I was and suppress my identity, and now I am so proud of of you know once I was mature enough to realize like this is a gift. This is a gift that I. Um, have this rich kind of background and that I can speak multiple language, languages, you know, it's a gift. And, but that took some time to grow into. And I think for me, too, because I'm not visibly Latina. When you look at me, I don't think in the history of my life I've ever gotten, oh, yes, she's Latina. It's she is Italian. I've gotten I've gotten <laughs> Middle Eastern. And I've sure. gotten Moroccan, everything but Latina. And if you see my parents, on the other hand, there is no mistaking that they are from uh, a Spanish speaking country. They are very clearly uh, Latinos. And so I was able to suppress it when I wanted to suppress it growing up and growing up in a place that was mostly Italian and Irish. And I really, I think, found my identity um, at Brown. And I really found that through, um, you know, when I landed at Brown. I came from a, a city called Malden, Massachusetts. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and Malden, you know, is a blue collar place and it's it's changed now. It's very different now. Um, but back then, you know, it's Malden High School, which is where I went, was on the risk of being accredited. I think all four years that I was there. It was a place where not many people went to uh went on to advanced education. And it was a place where my guidance counselors were also telling me just apply to Salem state, you know, that's, oh, that'll wow. be good for yeah. you. That was about, that was the bar. That was like, you know, the big achievement and defying odds. I said, uh, no, I'm going to reach for the stars. And I decided to apply to Brown's and And part of what brought me to Brown is that my grandparents lived in Providence, Rhode Island. And then my had and that's, so my family immigrated to um, a place called Central Falls, Rhode Island. So I had family in the area. And I said, you know, this school, Brown, it's a really great school. You should check it out. And I just went for it. And I, you know, I took a shot. I was so fortunate to get into Brown. But then I landed at Brown and I felt like I just landed on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> my, my roommate freshman year was this lovely girl who you know, told me that she went to a boarding school. And my first question was, what's a boarding mm-hmm. school? I had no idea. Literally had never heard of what a boarding school was. No clue. I said, let me get this straight. Your parents sent you to go live away from them? Like, for how long? And you've been doing this for how yeah. I just was like, mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And one person after the next, I just started feeling like, oh, my God. Like, did I make the right choice? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I cannot relate to anybody that meeting. And then I finally met someone who ended up being one of my roommates, and she was this really uh, incredible Latina from New York. And um, that moment, I was like, okay, like I could breathe a little bit. And I found, you know, the community, especially the the Latina community in Brown, as being like the place where I felt most at home. You know, because uh, one of my other closest friends, you know, was from the Bronx and. Then it was like, okay, I'm I will be me, and um, and me in all its sense. And so, um, it was really fun when I was at Brown, getting to bring them to to my grandparents' house, and she's making arepas for them, with chocolate, <laughs> and like, you know. And then, you know, I've never looked back, and 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 since those days at Brown, I never again, um, you know, worked hard to kind of suppress who I was and my identity and where I came from. Yeah, you know, I talked about Brown as being a pivotal place in in my life you know of acceptance of really um but the reality is my best friend since i was 5 years old who yeah, you know Nadia good. Jackie shout out um, to Jackie awesome. <laughs> yes but you know Jackie and i grew up together and um you know our mothers met in like a supermarket in malden and they were both single moms um at the time and and so they said we have to get our kids together and they're both you know both Im- uh, colombian immigrants and I was, I'm very proud of the honor of being the one that taught Jackie English in in first grade. And so, you know, even though like we, we didn't spend, like Jackie and I never spoke Spanish to each other, you know, growing up. And again, I think she, in many ways, like we're all, you know, we're always very proud of our heritage, but like, it also was just not like, you know, the thing that we focus on. It wasn't, you know, the,
3: the central part of, Mm -hmm. of what we identified with. Yeah. Uh, That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, Jessica, as I've gotten to know you and we have mutual friends, you do um, have a diverse network of of people, whether it's now you're growing a team at your organization, but even just in your personal life, you have people that range from varying differences of race and cultures. And as you're looking to grow TrueFed, what are some of the core values that you want to instill in the company that maybe come from your experiences with people outside of the company. Like what does inclusive language and behavior mean to you and to TrueFit?
4: Yeah, that definition for me personally is changing quite a bit. You know, as I begin to widen my definition of what diversity means, I think for so long it meant ethnic diversity and racial diversity. And now, you know, I've really extended that to include gender diversity. And that's been a real area of focus for me as of late and one that I've really been trying to push the dialogue in in our own company as we have just all different types. Again, not just racial diversity, uh, socioeconomic diversity, Mm -hmm. ethnic diversity, but really, you know, gender diversity as well. And so we are having conversations at TrueFit that we've never had before. And I am really fortunate um, because this is an area that I know very little about and have been really trying to inculcate myself, um, in, in, in really understanding because we have, you know, there's two components to my company. One is the recommendations we serve, but the other is we have a user interface Mm -hmm. and that user interface was built around a very strict set of, of rules that was set forth by the fashion industry, which is, you know, there are departments, there's women and there's men, there's kids. Mm -hmm. And now we're looking at it and saying like. This doesn't work. You know, so we're making one individual who wants to use our technology potentially have to create five different profiles to represent who they are, because maybe they have small feet and they're buying kids running shoes. But then they buy, you know, maybe they're somebody who identifies female, but they happen to like men's pants and they're buying men's pants for themselves. And there's like, you know, so we really had to force ourselves to think differently. And we're completely like tearing apart our you know everything about our user experience mm-hmm. and we have this constant dialogue about like where do we need to do better and i'm so grateful because it's an area that i still am like learning so much about and i think you know it's so critical you know especially for parents right now to like really widen those definitions of what inclusive means and what diversity means because it's not just those
3: you know old ideals of what we we all used to
4: have in our minds yeah. It's, you're Absolutely. literally like
3: speaking to my heart too, right? now. <laughs> like that, that was, that's incredible. and Fantastic. And thank you for that.
2: Jessica, more questions for me. <laughs> no, uh, just wanted to ask you, it sounds like you've been on, on a, on quite a journey over the last 17 years and you've learned a ton. So just reflecting back and, and obviously seems like very recently the, those learnings are coming, uh, much, much faster in terms of diversity, equity inclusion. So what piece of advice would you share with someone who's starting a company now about anything DEI related?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think just really to focus on like who your audience is, who is your customer and build services and products that really serve the problems that they face on a day-to-day basis. And and again, for us, that last example that I gave is a perfect one because we had been thinking we were this like really diverse uh, company and um, I think when you're too narrow, like you have to talk to customers. You have to understand what, you know, what they are really experiencing. You think they you might know their problem, but, you know, that customer research for anybody starting a company, that is the most important thing that you will do before you ever build on day one. You have to have real conversations with real people that are going to be using your product or your services. And, and that's the best way uh, to get it right because it's invaluable. Every time that you speak to somebody that is, be buying a good or a service from you um, or technology uh, you learn something every single time without exception. and so it's um, you know it's the thing that's the non-negotiable and starting a company through that is is I think how you build um, products and services that ultimately serve our diverse population and our incredibly um, you know diverse
3: set of people that we are. That's fantastic.
2: so Jessica in the in the setup for this show, you sent us some pictures. Of you with my hero, oh, Oprah. I, I was your hero. Right. And so so tell tell us a little I bit was, about.
4: Yes. She's my hero too.
2: <laughs> I heard her speak. So I a couple of years ago, I heard her speak with President Where'd Obama. You hear her speak? This was at the Qualtrics conference here in Salt Lake City. And yeah. so
4: my co founder was from Salt Lake City, by the way. Is in
2: Romney? Our,
4: yes. And our series A investor, you know, Silicon Slopes, as they say. You're kidding. That's really cool
2: city as well oh that's awesome that's awesome well um want to hear more about that as well but but uh heard oprah and president obama speak on the same you know like kind of back to back or i guess it was a day apart and my wife and i walked out and we were like oprah is so much more impressive (laughs) than barack obama
4: i have been saying this for for years i mean i i've been such an oprah fan since really like you know since I watched her show every single day, you know, that her talk show. I just always found her, her ability to connect to people and her back, her story is just so inspiring. Like for those, you know, that don't know her story well, it's just one that like, it just makes you feel like you can do anything. And I think that that was the thing that has always, that has always garnered my respect for oprah you know as much as people see her as this tv personality and i was very sad uh recently when i actually put up i don't know if you guys can see behind me i have like something hanging on my wall there those are my three pictures oh, with oprah nice. you know and i put i hung up the uh the picture frame and my kids come in there like mom who's that I'm oh like that <laughs> come on like you be kidding me come on I said, it's only the most famous woman in the world that you're standing next to. And they were so unimpressed. But, you know, so that was one of the highlights of my career. I think it was just such a moment for me where this person that I truly admire, that has accomplished incredible things in her life and overcome incredible obstacles, for me to get to present my business to Oprah and Gayle at backstage at the Emmys, this was in 2008. So at, at all these award shows, they do kind of these backstage lounges. Actually, I don't know if today, like nowadays they still do them, but back then they did. And so we got an opportunity to um, gift celebrities with um, denim, but that we fitted to, like, so we basically input all their information and then we, you know, had a whole stack of G's and we said based on, you know, the, what the algorithm said, these should be perfect for you. And so we got an opportunity to walk her through, create a profile. She's looking over my shoulder and she's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And and there's Gail right next to her. And it was so interesting, you know, talking about the Oprah effect. When she walked into that room, <laughs> every single person in that lounge was like, oh, like it just, the the oh, conversation yeah. stopped. Everybody was holding their breath. And here I was, was like. Yeah. This is my time. This is my moment. God, I will be damned if I don't take advantage of this. And while everybody was retreating and they're just like watching her, yeah. you know, walk through. Here I was, <laughs> so young, so naive, like, who the hell did I think I was? But, you know, I'm standing there nice and proud, waiting for Oprah to come by. I'm like, I am yes. got my moment with Oprah. And, and there I was. And I was the only person who was willing to wow. speak to her and was just, you know, again, it was my my moment, my opportunity. It's like that Eminem song. And, you know, I feel like in life when you are presented with those things, I've never talked to Oprah since. I haven't, haven't had any connection. I do believe we are passable yeah. frost again. Sure. But it's an experience I'll never forget. And um, yeah, she went out of the lounge and she was asked, you know, well, what were your favorite things? And she said truth that, you know, at the time we were called nice. true genes, but she said true jeans And and so that was a moment um, that I'll carry with me Dead. forever. I would die. absolutely,
2: and it's and it's one of my the highlights of my career to talk to 100%. someone who has talked to Oprah. It's like six degrees well, right? of separation, hundred <laughs> percent.
3: Yeah, it's <is> amazing.
2: <laughs> I mean, I went to that conference. I, that was it was very much like you know I knew she's like super famous and people love her, and I walked out of there being a super fan. I was like, this is the most impressive yeah. person I've ever seen live in yeah. person. So I get well, it.
3: Excellent. Um Jessica.
2: Awesome. Yeah. So Can great you, to meet you, Jessica. So great to meet you. Thanks so much me, yeah. for for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank,
4: Thank you both so much for the uh for the fun discussion.
2: All right, Nadia, we're back. It's time for com reflections. How much yes, did you love talking to Jessica? Part. Yes.
3: You know, Immensely. I mean, you know, Rob. First of all, you really had your moment when Jessica told you that you had a good gr- a good radio voice.
2: Yeah, I I know, <laughs> right? I know. Did I sound a little bit over enthusiastic when she said that? It was
3: so great. I love it. I mean, you do have a really good voice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you, thank you. I had a hard time containing myself.
3: That's hilarious. I really enjoyed Jessica's journey and reflection and some of the lessons learned. And um you know what, that Oprah story was just incredible and super inspiring.
2: I was so what so seriously. What I was really struck by was the how the business challenge for her was very personal. Yet when when she created the first algorithm, they really failed to take into account the homogeneity of their customer base that they were that they were training their algorithm on, um, and that was creating bias in the recommendations that they were making. So that was really just a fascinating part of her story and that journey as well uh, mm-hmm. for me. And so. 10 years ago when they started, I mean, you can imagine that happened quite frequently. And I think that that was a much more common thing and it's getting a little bit better. But I thought that was really interesting considering the the technology that they were building and the customer base that they had. That was fascinating. What did, uh, right. what did you take away from the conversation, Nadia?
3: Yeah, uh, totally. You know, she shared how initially they connected to many people and studied like millions and millions of consumer patterns and her reflections of like the lessons learned Um, from machine learning and the bias that shows up in algorithms, like it seems like this was a massive eye-opener for her and for her team members. Um, And then they adjusted, right? And she said it's a continuous learning process for her. So I think this speaks to many inclusive values or behaviors as leaders, but one that's kind of very apparent to me um, was like her Mm -hmm. listening or the team's ability to listen. So, you know, we both know many studies indicate that there's like a clear link between leaders actively listening to their workforce and specifically creating a culture of inclusion. But there's also that really is no different to when you're trying to listen to your consumers. Mm -hmm. And what I found to be really cool was that, um, again, listening in the context of consumers and product development, what we mean by this, I think, is taking the time to engage with people of various backgrounds, of geo- you know, different geographic locations, socioeconomic status and genders, right? So having kind of a, bo- a broad, diverse group of folks to gather feedback from is really important and it's key. So thinking about your marketplace and who um, you're trying to serve and getting their feedback to be able to iterate your product, mm-hmm, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's really important. And then this really helps, like when I, when you, you know, we've, we've covered this a lot with many of the, our clients that we've spoke to, but when you are able to do that, this helps you kind of decrease any assumptions that is in the product development um, or mm-hmm. the development of the product. And then it also helps to kind of uncover any bias in the marketing of the product that you're doing, right? Those are kind of the benefits, but like, how do you do this, right? So when we're coaching leaders and how you do this, it's it's conducting focus groups. It's mm. taking polls, right? It's having kind of um, these conversations about user experience, looking at the customer research that you have, right? Jessica talked about looking um, at the customer research. She talked about the psychology of folks. And so if you have that information available, being able to use that is is will be really helpful. Rob, I'm going to pause because it sounded like you wanted to say something.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to offer, I think that's great advice to do these surveys to get the quantitative data that you need and be objective about it. But people will tell you, or entrepreneurs or founders will will worry that they don't have enough people to gather that kind of data and to do a large survey. And I think that's just fine. I think it's like, it can be as simple as having a conversation and just trying to be truly objective and listening and getting real authentic feedback from people, people that are your customers about a product or a product feature. I just wanna make sure that people don't think that it has to be overly complicated and quantitative.
3: Absolutely, I mean, that qualitative input is so important. So asking the right questions to gather some of that information that you need to make your product better. Reiterate um, and so on and so forth. I think all while still aligning to your core mission and core values, right?
2: Right, right, absolutely. So thanks for that, Nadia. Um, thanks for offering that. It's always fun. Come reflecting with you. One it's of my, my favorite, favorite part of the week, Rob. <laughs> Yours too. <laughs> and thanks so much to Jessica Murphy of TrueFit. She was absolutely fantastic in helping us close out our segment of Inclusive Collective focused on startups. Yeah. As we have been focused on products and marketing and branding uh, along the startup journey. So thanks so much to Jessica. And that's it for this week's episode. Inclusive Collective Podcast is a production of Refillion Media. If you like what you hear, please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback at com, And you can find us on Instagram at, at Inclusive Collective Podcast. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley. And I'm your other co-host, Nadia Butt. We'll see you next week.